In 2004, a mysterious collection of photos appeared at the Adirondack Experience, a museum in Blue Mountain Lake. They were taken in 1932 and show a dead black man tied to a toboggan surrounded by three white men. Doreen Alessi Holmes is the museum's collections manager. It's very troubling to look at the propped up corpse of a human and people just sort of standing around like, yeah, sure, take our photo with this trophy. And I don't know that that's what they were thinking, but that is how it plays today when you look at those photographs. Now the museum is trying to unravel the mystery behind those photos, and it's partnering with a black artist to bear witness to what really happened back in 1932. Emily Russell has the story. There's an old logging road in the central Adirondacks near Newcomb. On a warm, sunny day, it's where I meet Keith Morris Washington. He's an artist and professor who has stayed very humble about his work. I don't know if I've ever said this in an interview uh, before, but, you know, I'm always kind of astonished when a good painting happens. (laughs) It's all kind of this magic. You can see that magic in many of his landscape paintings and flower portraits. A lot of Washington's more recent work explores black identity in America. Washington uses art to highlight the violence that black people have faced in both the past and the present. For one project, Washington has been painting landscapes of lynching sites around the U.S. It's what brought him here to the Adirondacks. For me, part of this is to go to the places and and to bear witness. Um, Because it really is, for me, about honoring the memories of the victims. In this case, the victim was a black man who encountered two white men in these woods in March of 1932. According to historical records, they went their separate ways, but the two men reported the black man to police. A few days later, a larger group tracked him down, a gunfight ensued, and the black man was killed. Doreen Alessi Holmes from the Adirondack Experience is our guide out here today. As we walk down the road, she points out features in the landscape, obstacles the man must have had to endure while he was being tracked down by the group of white men. As we're moving forward, keep your eyes on that ridge ahead of us, because that is the Dunbrook Range. And it's an intimidatingly high and steep mountain, and I just can't imagine climbing up over that in the winter. Washington will paint this place, but not the violence that occurred here. His pieces focus more on the landscape, the beautiful and sublime aspects of it. He uses a series of squiggle marks, his description, to paint lush green grasses, tall trees, and wispy blue skies. Washington says his whole artistic process is more a tribute to life than to death. Even when I'm painting, I'm not thinking about... Uh, the tragic nature of the person's life, but really trying to think about the ways in which I'm honoring the person's life and documenting their history. Another person who's been working to document the history of what happened here is Eliza Jane Darling. She's an anthropology professor and former public historian for Hamilton County. This is the history of our region, and we need to understand what happened, and we certainly need to establish facts. But in the second place, I think there is a question of social justice and justice for this man. 
Darling has read the police and coroner's reports, piecing together what really happened over those few days in March. She's also read articles about the manhunt and the man's death, which made national news at the time. A headline in the New York Times from 1932 read, quote, wild man is killed in the Adirondack. Darling says the sensationalized media back then is similar to the racist stereotypes black people still face today. I mean, the headlines that this made could have been uh, taken from today's headlines. They really could have. Um, You know, the overestimation of the man's threat, the dehumanization involved in calling him a wild man, the fact that his body was left exposed, um, the, the fact that someone called the police when there didn't appear to be any crime having been committed. Darling wrote two articles for the Adirondack Daily Enterprise a few years ago, laying out everything she learned about the killing. According to records, the man is buried in nearby North Creek. Darling says she hopes one day to figure out who the man was. Back on the old logging road, we pass coyote and deer tracks. Our guide, Doreen Alessi Holmes, points us to something fluttering atop some wildflowers. Just, there's an American Beauty butterfly over there right now. Um, and it's on a plant that's locally called Pearly Everlast. The Adirondacks are a place of deep wilderness and a lot of beauty, but they're also a place where prejudice and racism still exists. Artist Keith Morris Washington says that is still evident here today. As I was uh, driving in yesterday, I saw, you know, New York license plate and a Confederate plate underneath it. And it's just like, yeah, you can't get away from that kind of... um, Ignorance. I'll, I'll put it that way kindly. As we reach the end of the logging road, Washington stops to take a few photos. I ask him what's on his mind during an experience like this one. As I was walking to this place, um, you know, I was in a sort of broad way thinking about the victim and, and um, just sort of sending my thoughts to make a, a great painting for this person who... We don't know their name yet, even. So there's a a bit of a solemnness to it. Washington says his goal is to make a beautiful painting of a place with a tragic past. The Adirondack Experience will have the option to buy the piece and add it to its permanent collection, putting more of the Adirondack's history on display. Emily Russell, North Country Public Radio, Newcomb. If you look at the demographics of the North Country, it's a predominantly white place. Since its data shows that 88% of residents identify as Caucasian, that can make growing up here as a person of color really difficult. But we don't hear those stories very often. Tomorrow, we'll hear about the Ku Klux Klan's presence in the North Country and how it made the region whiter than it otherwise would have been. Today, we'll hear from Alice Green, a black woman who grew up in the 1950s and 60s in a small mining town on Lake Champlain. Amy Feireisel has her story. Today, Alice Green is a lifelong activist and academic. She has a doctorate in criminal justice and has worked with Albany's police department on equity and diversity issues. But in 1948, Green was just seven years old and had just moved to the North Country with her parents and five siblings. Her father had found a job with Republic Steel, working in a blasting furnace. Green says they moved largely as a way to escape the Deep South. Because of Jim Crow segregation, and also the criminal justice system itself. 
The Witherby Sherman mine was one of the largest pre-war producers of iron ore in the country. Its hub was Port Henry, and there was actually a black community there, about 13 families living in company housing, all on the same street. This was street in Port Henry, where everybody lived. They developed this community. They even established a church. But that housing was full when Green's father was hired, and they got housing in Witherby, a small town five miles away. It was full of other mine workers, many first-generation immigrants from Europe. The Greens were one of two black families there. The town was totally white. It was almost totally Catholic. And for us, <laughs> who, who were neither, it was extremely challenging. Green says there were other black people scattered around the North Country, cooks in Lake Placid, military men in Plattsburgh, apple pickers in Peru, but they rarely saw them. Green says her family always felt like outsiders in Witherby. Green's new memoir is called Outsider. She was inspired to write it after attending a high school reunion. She says former classmates waxed poetic about how when they'd grown up, racial tensions didn't exist. Green was floored. That hadn't been the story of her Adirondack childhood, which she says was full of subtle racism. They don't come to your house and, you know, burn crosses and things like that. It was also blatant racism. She almost never felt welcome. Kids didn't invite her to birthday parties. And racist language was everywhere, even in schoolyard games. And it was eeny, meeny, miny, moe, catch nigger by his toe. That was so accepted. Everywhere I went, I mean, not only kids... But adults, they repeated that over and over again. Nearly a century after the Civil War, Green says life was far from equal. She saw that the summer she was 15 years old, when she and one of her few friends, a next-door neighbor named Myrtle, both got their working papers and found summer jobs as chambermaids down near Paradox Lake. We were just so excited. We thought we would go and work and be roommates. They got a ride down to Paradox and met the owner, Mrs. Claudis. Mrs. Claudis and her family lived in this Big, gorgeous apartment. Mrs. Claudis gestured to Green's friend. She said, Myrtle, you're going to stay here. Then she took young Alice to the backyard, where there was an old barn. She said, this is where you will live. And that was totally confusing to me, because when I walked in, there was nothing there except a cot. Green learned that other adult black workers also stayed in the barn, but they worked nights, so Green was left alone. I would be the only one up in this barn and didn't understand the separation thing quite. It was dark. I, didn't, I was 40 miles from my home. And I could hear my mother saying, stay there. You know, you need to make money. But something else told me <laughs> that this wasn't right. She got up as soon as it was light and asked to speak with Mrs. Claudis. I told her, I don't understand why the black people are living in the barn. And that there were bats there and I want to live with my with my friend. And she said, you can't do that. Green quit on the spot. Her friend Myrtle had heard it all. And she said, well, I quit too. <laughs> so the two of us <laughs> gathered our thing. We had no idea how we were going to get home. None whatsoever. But Green said that didn't matter to her. And she points to that moment as when she learned how to do the right thing, even if it was hard. I never regretted it. I didn't you know, I couldn't get another job. I had to use my old clothes and all that stuff. But I felt good about myself. And that's where a lot of what I do comes from. Green went to college at SUNY Albany and got her master's in education. After working as a teacher and doing community work in low-income neighborhoods, she got two more masters in social work and criminology, then a doctorate in criminal justice. 
She says most of her education was motivated by a desire to help incarcerated people. She says there have been lots of hard moments in her career, but she's never shied away from them. I have to confront people, and I can confront anybody. You know, people in power doesn't bother me whatsoever. <laughs> as long as I think that I'm doing the right thing. In 1985, Green founded the Center for Law and Justice in Albany, a nonprofit that works to aid incarcerated people and keep new people from entering prisons. She still visits the Adirondacks regularly and has a place in Essex with her husband, which is where we spoke. She says she loves introducing people to the area and enjoying it herself. And to go places where I wouldn't think I could be uh, when I was growing up. I mean, the message that we got was, that's not for you. Lake Placid especially. (laughs) Now I come back to enjoy what was off limits to me. (laughs) When people ask Green where she's from, she tells them the Adirondacks. Amy Feireisel, North Country Public Radio, on the shores of Lake Champlain. The Ku Klux Klan's presence in St. Lawrence County rose after the showing of the racist propaganda film The Birth of a Nation. Historian Brian Thompson says the local press was supportive of the film's racist themes. Starting in 1922, and after that, the Klan started to gain momentum here, And over the next uh, six to seven years, it was a very prominent force with rallies being held all over the county. The largest rally I found recorded was some 5,000 people on the Potsdam Norwood Road, where they recruited 500 new members at one rally. There were chapters all over the county. There was a chapter in Brzee Corners, in Depoister, Potsdam, Messina, Ogdensburg, Oswegatchie, to name a few of the places. Thompson's the historian for the town of DeKalb in St. Lawrence County. He's given talks about the Klan and has written about the North Country's black communities. Thompson says anywhere from 1,000 to 2,000 people would attend Klan rallies. He says they recruited entire social organizations to join their ranks. The Klan was a pyramid scheme. So if you joined... You paid your 10 bucks and the Klegel got so much and the local chapter got so much and the national chapter did. If you brought your friend along and he joined, you got a dollar of his 10 bucks. Thompson says the Klan was focused on forcing out the county's black community. And there were a large number of black workers in Messina working for Alcoa in the early 20s. They managed to... Uh, with the help of the local judge to basically eliminate that black community. Whereas in 1920, there were over 50 black men working in Alcoa. By 1930, there were three. Thompson says the Klan and public officials were using the courts to drive away black residents. Judges would say you can go to jail or leave town. Local elected officials who deliberately in court said, You can either have this punishment for speeding or you can leave town on the six o'clock train. And that was given over and over again in printed records, but only to African-American people living in the county, with one exception. One Russian immigrant had the same sentence. Thompson says the Klan's violence also targeted Catholics, Jews, and immigrants in the county. There was one recorded incident where on one night... A cross was burnt on every Catholic household between the village of Canton and the village of Pirates, which at that time 
was a big paper mill town, and most of the employees were Eastern European immigrants and are largely Catholic. And they sent letters to many people telling them they should leave the community for the, for the good of the community. Thompson says mentions of the Klan in local newspapers started to die out when the state passed a law requiring oath-bearing organizations to divulge membership lists. He says records show local chapters existed within St. Lawrence County through the early 1930s. Thompson says the Klan's lasting impact is clear in the county's racial demographics. Between the mid-1800s and up until the 1920s, there was a consistent black population of about 200 people. It stayed that way constantly through 1920. By 1930, there's just about 50 black people left. And other than three or four of them, they're all residents of the St. Lawrence Psychiatric Hospital. So the only people who came here for medical treatment from the whole of northern New York. Uh, And the legend has become there were never any black people here. He says white supremacy drove out a population that could have grown during the Great Migration of the mid-1900s. And he asks, what could have been if the black community in the North Country had been allowed to flourish? We forced our black community out. Niagara Falls, they stayed, they had 300 black people there at the beginning of World War II in 1940. By the end of World War II, with the migration north and the war industry, they had, in 1950, they had 3,000 black people. If we had let the 150 black people stay in Messina, would there have been 1,500 by 1950? And what difference would that have made in terms of supporting a vibrant black community? Thompson says knowing this history helps combat deliberate attempts to whitewash the community's history. He says if we can learn from it, we'll be better equipped to challenge similar events in the present and future. Catherine Wheeler, North Country Public Radio. Brian Thompson says his interest in St. Lawrence County's Black history started with his children's education. I'm the adoptive parent of two Black children. And when my son was in fourth grade, in fourth grade, they're supposed to learn state and local history. And in the conference with his teacher near the end of the year, I asked about what black history my son had learned, and the response is that he was absent the one day we talked about black history. And that sort of set my ears on edge. Thompson is the town of DeKalb's historian. He's researched the North Country's history for decades and won awards for his work. Thompson also taught courses for future elementary school history teachers at SUNY Potsdam. He says he knew teachers at the time didn't have a lot of resources about black history in New York State, let alone the North Country. I thought about it a lot, and I talked to some black friends of mine, and thinking maybe someone who is black should write this. And a friend of mine who was an English teacher, an African-American English teacher, at Sunni Potsdam said to me, if you don't write it, nobody else will. And so then I started. It took me 20 years of research to put this book together. That book is called African Americans of St. Lawrence County. Thompson says the North Country's black history starts right when Europeans began to colonize the area. When Abby Francis Piquet came to found La Presentation in what's today Ogdensburg, he came with an enslaved man, Charles, and the community at La Presentation included a black woman who was a midwife 
only listed in the birth and death records as the Negress, so we don't have a name for her. Thompson says before New York finally emancipated slaves in 1827, the wealthiest families in St. Lawrence County enslaved people in places like Waddington and Ogdensburg. It was a sign of social status. Thompson says after emancipation, the white people in the county wouldn't sell land to black people. That meant they had to move around to find work. Before the Civil War, relations between white and black people in St. Lawrence County varied from community to community. Thompson says there were a lot of interracial marriages and people could get along, but all of that changed after the Civil War. Jim Crow ideas of race and racism were brought, whereas before the Civil War, there were many ardent abolitionists and they talked about in the newspapers about the noble African After the Civil War, the N-word slang started to appear in huge numbers in the local papers, and the local papers ran serial stories putting out all the stereotypes that we've heard of, racist stereotypes that didn't appear in the press before then. They'd run these fiction serial stories which showed African Americans to be ignorant, they could only speak in pidgin English and whatever, and that just was not the case before the war. Those things weren't talked about in that way. Thompson says many white people in the North Country didn't want to admit they were abolitionists. Abolitionists were blamed for the war, the high death toll, and the economic downturn that followed. So anti-black sentiment rose. Then the racist propaganda film The Birth of a Nation was shown in St. Lawrence County in the 1920s. The Madrid newspaper editor talking about how young people should go to see the movie to learn about the big mistake of trying to integrate black people into society and treat them as equal human beings. And Madrid was one of the centers of the abolitionist movement during the Civil War and after the Civil War, the Scotch Presbyterian Church raised large amounts of money and sent members to the South to teach in the freedom schools that that taught illiterate former slaves how to read and write and do math. And here a generation later, newspaper editors telling people we need to learn that that was a mistake and we should never have done that. The Ku Klux Klan rose in the North Country between the 1920s and 30s. Thompson says papers in faraway places like Chicago warned black people about migrating to a place like Messina, where the Klan was terrorizing black residents. Thompson says this was the peak of anti-black racism in St. Lawrence County. And by the 1930s, almost all of the black communities were gone. Thompson says putting together this history was hard. He would find a couple of sentences here and there. He says without census records, oftentimes there would be no record that someone existed. One of the stories I tell in the book is about the Fry family of Governor, and Flora Fry was given a land grant by Garrett Smith when he was giving land to free black men, two from every county in the state, so they could vote because there was a poll tax in New York for black people. And I wanted to find out why a woman got it, because she couldn't vote anyway for another 75 years uh, in New York. Um, And I had dug out incredible records, but a little piece here, a little piece there, all starting with Garrett Smith's records of her. Thompson's book often focuses on individuals and families to illustrate the black community's experiences in a particular place and time. I think that's an important way to tell history because it makes it personal to us. There's got to be somebody in that book that you as a reader will relate to, whether it's Nanny and what she goes through in her travails with pregnancy 
whether it's the Boston family raising multiple generations of, of their family in the Messina area and fighting in the Civil War, or if it's George Swan being a successful businessman. You, there should be somebody there that you can relate to in the book, I hope. That was my goal. Thompson says the Black community's resilience is the most important takeaway of the book. He says this history has always been a part of the North Country, and it's important to acknowledge and learn about it. Catherine Wheeler, North Country Public Radio, in DeKalb. For most of America's history as a nation, Black people have either been enslaved or oppressed. By the 19th century, slavery was abolished in the North, but there were still white Northerners who owned slaves, and all freed Black people lacked basic human rights. Even in the North, many Black people experienced severe discrimination. In the 1840s, a man named Garrett Smith set out to change that. He owned 120,000 acres of land in the Adirondacks. By giving away parcels of that land to Black American men, those men could then gain the right to vote. Paul Smith's professor, Kurt Steger, has been researching Black history in the Adirondacks. He recently presented some of those findings to the Adirondack Park Agency. The basic idea was to bring people of diverse backgrounds onto the land to live together and build communities out of mutual respect as neighbors and facing common challenges, which I think actually fits the theme of the Adirondack Park now as well. But it was uh, much more ambitious back then. That ambitious settlement became known as Timbuktu. Steger has been plotting where exactly those black settlements were in the Adirondacks. He showed the APA maps of those plots around the region. At least half of North Elba and much of St. Armand was black owned in the 1850s. There's the town of Franklin with Vermontville and uh, Bloomingdale just below it and all the way up to Loon Lake and beyond up into Belmont. So it was huge. About half of this landscape was Black-owned. Life in the Adirondacks was not easy back then, especially for Black people. Many eventually moved out of the area, but some stayed and raised their families in the Adirondacks. There are descendants of that Timbuktu settlement still in the region today. Another aspect of Steger's research has focused on place names. He explained to the APA about learning of an offensive name of a brook just north of Saranac Lake. Years ago, I was in Onchiota. The red star shows uh, the Paul Smith's College property. And I was talking to a friend who said, oh, that little brook right there, that's called N-Word Brook. I thought, wow, that's, you know, not only offensive, but mysterious. How could that happen in a place like this? Steger believes the brook was named for the skin color of a dozen or so black families that lived in the area. So he and some other folks worked to change that name. They got support from students, faculty, and staff at Paul Smith College, as well as the Vermontville Town Council and county officials. They wrote to the U.S. Board on Geographic Names and were successfully granted permission to change the name to John Thomas Brook. Thomas was one of the first settlers of Timbuktu. He later sold his original plot of land, but moved back to the Vermontville area with his family. Thomas bought 150 acres of land where he grew vegetables and raised cows and sheep. John Thomas spent the rest of his days in Vermontville, and he's buried in Union Cemetery, that quiet little cemetery you drive past on Route 3 heading for Plattsburgh, zipping past, not even thinking about it. He's right in there, and so is his wife. The work to educate the public and celebrate the legacy of Black settlers and abolitionists in the Adirondacks is ongoing. Martha Swan also spoke at the recent APA meeting. Swan is the founder and executive director of John Brown Lives, a project named after the legendary white abolitionists who owned a farm near Lake Placid. Through this work, 
that others have done and that we've done together, I have begun to believe in the unifying potential of our history, the unifying potential of rolling up our sleeves, digging deep into the horrors, the terrors, the tragedies, the violence, the crime of so much of our history. Swan helped organize the Juneteenth celebration at the John Brown Farm. Then in August, the farm is planning to host a long table dinner and discussion with leading scholars such as Nell Painter. The event is an effort to bring together diverse people and perspectives to talk about the history and the future of the Adirondack Park. Reporting in Saranac Lake, I'm Emily Russell.